We're so glad that you are checking out this sermon from New Beginnings. Our vision as a church is to become an authentic biblical community that transforms our city and impacts the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do this through gathering in worship, growing through community, giving to the kingdom, and going on mission. We know that one of the greatest blessings of the church is getting to pursue this vision that God has given us together. My hope is that we would get the opportunity to connect with you in person and get you plugged into the life of our church. Also, if you have been blessed by the ministries of New Beginnings, we ask that you would consider supporting us financially. You can do so by clicking on the giving tab of our website, nvbctx.org. I pray that you are both encouraged and challenged by the scripture today. This morning, we are beginning a brand new series we have entitled A Call to Die, A Call to Die. And in this series, uh, over the next seven weeks, we will unpack and wrestle with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to truly know Him, to fully obey Him, and to gladly follow Him. That is what this series is all about. That is what a call to die is all about, what it means to know Jesus. I think all of us can probably think of people that maybe we've known in our life that we thought we knew only to find out later we didn't really know them. Uh, when I was 15, I picked up a guitar for the first time. And uh, uh, mainly because I wanted it to make me look cool to girls, and I think it had the opposite effect when they heard me play it. And, uh, but I picked it up for the first time, and I thought, man, I'm going to learn this thing. And, and I promise you, those, those early months of me playing that thing were terrible. It was torture on my family. I couldn't know what I was doing. Um, but around 1992, uh, an album came out by a man named Eric Clapton. Anybody know Eric Clapton? Good. There's some, there's some of you going to make it into the kingdom. I'm proud of you. Uh, <laughs> Eric, <laughs> Eric Clapton, this guy right here, uh, he released this album in 1992, Eric Clapton Unplugged. Anybody ever heard this album? Oh, now you're some of my favorite people. We're getting shorter, but we're going to get closer, right? And so um, this album changed everything. I don't know if you've ever uh, listened to a band or, or heard an album and like something just flipped in your brain. That's what happened when I listened to this Unplugged album. He was playing in a way that I'd just never seen, I'd never heard, and I became fascinated with it. And over the course of my life, I am not embarrassed to tell you, I have purchased this album no fewer than five times, and that's a real story. I have purchased it five times. I was so thankful uh, when it came out digitally, and I could put it on a device and didn't have to buy it anymore. And so, um, but I, I began to watch him play, and I began to learn about him, and I read his autobiography like a nerd, but I loved it. And uh, I began to kind of backtrack in his career into all these amazing songs. And I learned, you know, I, I went all the way back to the early 60s when he was kicked out of art school for what I can only assume was for being too awesome. And then um, he, he started his first band called The Roosters, and then he was in a band called The Yardbirds. And I don't know what the fascination was with yard animals, but he had one. And uh, uh, from there, he, he was in uh, a band called, a very influential band called Cream, and then Blind Faith, and then Derek and the Dominoes. And then uh, for a few years, he went off on uh, a drug and alcohol bender, but I just, I just act like that, that season isn't real. Uh, and so, 
But he came back, everybody. He came back, okay? And he launched into a very successful solo career. And I am telling you, I would not listen to anyone try to tell me that he was not the greatest guitarist of all time. I knew everything there was to know about him. I'd read the book. I was listening to the music. I had followed his career. I knew all kinds of things about him. Here's what's crazy. I've never met him, and he doesn't know I exist. (laughs) He does not know I exist. We've never met. Why do I tell you that? Because I know a lot of stuff about him, but I don't really know him. Some of you know where I'm already going. Uh, I think there's times that some of us become convinced what we need is just a lot more knowledge about Jesus, and we're missing truly knowing Jesus. Knowing and following Jesus is not the same as having a head full of knowledge about him. Because if that knowledge isn't transforming my heart, then what, I, what is on display is that I don't know him at all. And that's what I want us to think through this morning. Do we truly know Jesus? And listen, Jesus isn't interested in, in amassing and assembling more and more people with a head knowledge about him. He is calling disciples. He is calling us to come and Die. So the question that we will wrestle with this morning is, what is a disciple? What is that? And what does Jesus call his disciples to do? The Greek word for disciple is a word that is pronounced mathetes. Mathetes is how it's pronounced. It literally just means pupil or learner or one who is trained. So we would assume that. We would know a disciple is a pupil. It is a learner, somebody who is being trained. But there is a, the, the root of that word, moth, is actually implies someone who is thinking something through and following through. So a disciple is not just a learner, but it is a learner who is thinking it through and following through. That's what a disciple is. So when Jesus uses that word, that's what he has in mind. So I want you to grab your Bible and go with me to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to start in verse 21. Matthew chapter 16, we'll start in verse 21. While you're turning there, what we kind of have is just before we enter into these verses, we see a conversation between Jesus and his disciples and around verses 13 through 18, where he asked them the question, you'll remember, where he says, who do people say that I am? You remember that? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you are Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. And then Jesus asked them the question that he really wanted them to wrestle with. He said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, sweet Peter, as he is prone to do, he speaks first, speaks loudest. I have that disease sometimes. And the first thing he says is, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's right, that's it. He said, Peter, God has revealed this to you, and now you are you are, you're not Simon Barjone anymore. You are Peter. You are the rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. With that in mind, let's start in verse 21. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. 
And Peter took him aside and said, and, and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. Verse 25. For whoever would lose his life, excuse me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with the angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we're asking that you would draw near in this time and in this moment. Um, God, I am praying that in the, in the power of your Holy Spirit, in the power of Jesus' name and in the anointing of your Holy Spirit, God, would you illuminate your word to us. God, apart from your Holy Spirit, we don't have eyes to see, we don't have ears to hear, but because of your Holy Spirit, God, our eyes are opened, our ears are opened, and we can hear your voice. And so, Father, I'm praying this morning that you would do that. Would you glorify yourself and magnify your will and your word to us now? In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are there in, in Matthew 16 and 21 through 23. We see this conversation between Peter and Jesus. Jesus has begun to tell his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. He's telling them what's going to happen. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the chief priest and the elders and the scribes, and I'm going to die. And three days later, I will be raised. And Peter rebukes him. Peter rebukes Jesus. And he says, Lord, this will never happen to you. Now remember, just a few verses before, Peter was the one who said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And now the Christ, and, and now the Christ has said, I must die. And Peter rebukes him. And what is the response that Jesus has there in verse 23? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Man, that's a strong rebuke. Anybody ever done something so knuckleheaded, somebody called you a little devil? Okay, that's, I have <laughs> plenty of times. That's Jesus is saying something different here, Right? He's looking at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. That is strong, especially in the light of the fact, in light of the fact that Jesus just in verse 17 and 18 had declared that Peter was blessed, that he was the rock and that Jesus was going to build his church on this man and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So what happened? Why this, why this shift and what is Jesus really saying? I believe what he's saying is, Peter, you are playing the part of Satan right now. Satan is using you. You see, Satan is a deceiver. He is a liar. He, he, he denies the power and authority of God's truth and God's rule. Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver. Satan also is also a distractor. He draws attention and focus and passion away from, from our true calling 
and purpose. So when Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you, Jesus says, get behind me. He is saying, do not lie to me. Do not try and distract me from my true purpose. Jesus knew that obedience to the will of his Father and completion of the mission that he came to accomplish on earth meant his suffering was necessary. It was necessary. In verse 21 that we just read, it said, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. There was no other way. And here is Peter telling Jesus, you don't have to die. You can, you can accomplish all that you came to do. You can be the Christ and the Son of the living God without having to die. You can have the authority and the power without the sacrifice. It's interesting to note that this is not the first time Jesus was tempted this way. You remember in Matthew chapter 4 when he was tempted by the devil. Remember, he had been fasting for 40 days and he was out in a desolate place and the devil came and tempted him. And what were the temptations? Turn that, turn that rock into bread. Turn that stone into bread. What was he saying? Satisfy yourself. Go up here on the highest place of the temple and, and jump off. Surely angels will, will save you. What was he saying? I'll prove you're who you say you are. Prove it. And then he took him up on this high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I will give all of these kingdoms to you if you will but bow to me. What was Jesus saying? I mean, what was the enemy saying? He was trying to give Jesus something that wasn't his to give. Because he's a liar. He's a deceiver. And Jesus said to him then in Matthew chapter 4, Be gone, for I will serve the Lord my God. He, Jesus to the devil himself and to Peter who was playing that part here in Matthew 16. He is saying, I have not come to satisfy myself. I have not come to please myself. I haven't come to savor myself and to save myself. I've come to serve, to be the last, to lay down my life, to obey the will of my Father. I've come to die. This is what he is saying. Peter, I've come to die. I don't receive that rebuke because it distracts me from what God sent me here to do. He then tells Peter in verse 23 uh, why it is that he's missed the point. Why it is that he's missed the point. He said in verse 23, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter had a, a faulty mindset. He was thinking the way men think. But listen, that's not the way God thinks, is it? His words uh, and his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They are higher than ours. So the big dilemma here for Peter is that everything he has been taught up to this point is being flipped upon its head. Everything he has learned as a good Jewish man is being flipped on its head. You see, Peter has been taught all of his life to be looking for a conquering king. Messiah will be a conquering king. Jesus has come then. He isn't looking for someone who is going to gladly and willfully allow himself to be conquered. It didn't make sense. Peter has is, 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 uh, been taught to look for a king that is going to, to dole out vengeance and Jesus said, I've come to give life. 
Peter's looking for a king that will use his authority and his power to overthrow. And Jesus said, I've come to serve. It's interesting to note, there's the Peter that Jesus, excuse me, there's the Jesus that Peter is wanting, and then there's the Jesus that is. There's the Jesus Peter wants, and then there's the Jesus that is. And, and before we cast judgment on Peter, it's important to remember, we are Peter. <laughs> That's who we are in this story. We are the Jekyll and Hyde who gets it one minute and forgets it the next. Can we just all acknowledge there's the Jesus we want, and there's the Jesus that is. What do I mean by that? You see, we love the Jesus that gives life. But we don't want the Jesus that's going to go rooting around into every area of our life. We love the Jesus that satisfies our longings, that, that meets our needs, that scratches our itches, if you will. But we don't want the Jesus that's come to completely take over our lives. And as Jesus is prone to do, he looks at Peter and he's looking at us and he is saying, I am now going to point you in a new direction, a new way of thinking. There is the Jesus you want and then there's the Jesus I am and I won't allow any of my disciples to settle for less than who I am. So if Peter and we like him have this faulty mindset that is causing us to miss the point, having our mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. And the question becomes, what is the mindset of a disciple? And what does the disciple look like whose mind is fixed on the things of God? I think Jesus tells us in the next four or five verses and starts right in verse 24. So look again at chapter 16, verse 24. <clears throat> And then Jesus told his disciples, so he's just told Peter, your mind is on the things of man, not the things of God. And he says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I want us to, I want us to unpack those three things for just a, a few minutes. The first thing Jesus says is, let him deny himself. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple... You have to deny yourself. What, is that, what does that mean? Because this moves against everything in our culture, doesn't it? And let's be honest, though, it moves against everything in our flesh, too. It moves against everything in my flesh and in that old self. See, there is a craving, I think, that we have for comfort and for ease and for approval. And Jesus is saying that if you want to come after me, you must deny those cravings. Why? Because the disciple of, we got to get this, because the disciple of Jesus Christ cannot follow him and indulge the self. You, you can't do both of those things. You cannot follow, say, I'm going to follow. I'm going to, deny, I'm, not, I'm going to do whatever Jesus wants me to do. I'm going to be a follower of Christ and not deny yourself. We, you can't do both. There is no easy believism in the kingdom of God. 
The call to follow Christ is a call to come and die. It is a call to deny myself. You know, I've referenced a few times before the story of the rich young ruler. I'm fascinated by it. Because Jesus looks at this young man who has everything, and he says to him what? There's only one thing you're lacking. You got all the head knowledge, bud. You got, it, you got it all up here. There's only one thing you're lacking. Go and sell everything you have. What is he saying? Go and get rid of all this stuff you use to indulge yourself. Go get rid of it and then come and follow. Because that's what it looks like to deny ourselves. I think there's two things I want you to, 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 to be captured by and to have uh, in our minds as we think about what it means to deny Ourself. How do we do this? I think the first is this. Denying myself means I have to recognize my position. I have to recognize my position. What do I mean by that? I want you to notice what Jesus said in verse 24. He said, if anyone would come, what? After me. If anyone would come after me. Those words are not coincidental. To deny myself first means to recognize I am not in the lead. We do not come before Jesus. We come after him. He leads, we follow. So there is this surrendering. There is this yielding of the cravings in my flesh to be first. You know, I know that your children don't struggle, and I just I'm, I admire all of you for that. I have children who struggle, and um, their struggles tend to be a lot about, all three of them, a lot about putting themselves first. The struggles in my marriage is oftentimes about putting myself first. And Jesus said there is a denial of that craving. You have to follow after. There is no coming first in the kingdom. There is only following after. You know, when I was in seminary, uh, I sang in these choirs, and one of them was huge. It was, it was called the Oratorio Chorus. It had like 200 singers in it. It's a massive choir in Fort Worth. And it was a really neat experience because every, uh, toward the end of the fall, entering into the Christmas season, every November, we would sing Handel's Messiah. Anybody ever sat and listened to all of Handel's Messiah? Would you, just, would you guys do that this year? Just, it's unbelievable music. And we would sing Handel's Messiah. And so there'd be, they're, they're in Bass Hall in Fort Worth, this beautiful concert hall. There'd be 200 singers. We looked like an army. And in, in tuxedos and black gowns. And in front of us was the Fort Worth Symphony Orchestra, which was a world-class orchestra. And then in front of them were all of the soloists who were going to sing all of the solos through uh, uh, Handel's Messiah. And all of these people were on stage, almost 300 probably people on stage. But the thing didn't start until the conductor came out. And when the conductor walked on stage, 300 sets of eyes looked at him. And we stayed locked on him for the next hour and a half. We dialed right in to him he took the lead, he called the shots, he, he set the tempo, he was in charge. All eyes were on him. And because we followed his leading, those 300 people were able to create something unbelievably beautiful that surely would have, we would have never been able to do apart from following his leading. 
Can you imagine the disaster of 300 people, singers and, and, and players, all of a sudden deciding in one moment together on the stage, they're going to try to do their own thing and make something beautiful. It's going to be a nightmare. But because we had fixed our eyes on the conductor, something amazing happened. He led, we followed. You know what's interesting? We would always come to the end of, of those productions and they would kind of recognize the chorus and people would applaud. And they'd recognize the orchestra and the people would applaud and the soloist and they would applaud. You know who got the loudest and longest applause? That conductor. Because in the end, we had one job to make him look good. That was my job. I am telling you, there is a denying of self. Believer, if you are going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to deny yourself means I have a singular purpose, and it is to make Jesus look glorious. That's my job. My job is not to, to go around seeking glory and fame for myself. It is to deny myself and to cause the world around me to look at the glorious beauty of Jesus and to find him irresistible. So recognizing my position, he comes first, I come after. Here's the second thing it means to deny myself. It means surrendering my authority. Ooh, we don't like this one. I don't like this one at all. Y'all want to skip it, maybe? No, we're going to do it. Here we go. Surrendering my authority. In order to recognize my position, I must surrender my authority. Here's what that means. Denying yourself is not doing without some creature comfort, though it, it may uh, certainly involve that, but rather it is a denying of my authority over my own life. Man. It is this glad declaration that I am not calling the shots. That's a challenge for us, isn't it? To acknowledge and embrace the reality that I am not the ultimate authority over my own life. Jesus is. Oh, how our flesh and our old self wages war against this. Our pride our need for recognition and approval, that arrogance that, that we disguise with words like tough or resilient or independent is really just the exercise of our flesh trying to keep control. Now, is there anything wrong with being strong and resilient? No, absolutely not. As long as it's paired with the confession that the Lord is the strength of the strong. As long as it is paired with the confession that, that my strength is from the Lord, that it is God who arms us with strength. And according to his word, um, we are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It is surrendering my authority over my own life. You know, if you look back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, uh, in verse 16, Jesus says this. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. That is, so that they may see you be strong. They may see you do great things and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I want you to notice whose light it is that's shining. Jesus said, let your light shine. 
and, and whose good works are on display so that they may see your good works. But we have to notice who gets the glory so that they may give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what it is to deny yourself. It is to make Jesus look glorious no matter what it costs me. Jesus said you must deny yourself. He said you must take up the cross. This phrase, take up his cross, would not have been lost on the disciples. It would have had significant meaning for these followers of Jesus. They understood full well the, the imagery of the cross. They knew it was an instrument of great suffering and pain. So again, these words from Christ are not coincidental. They are deliberate. What is Jesus saying? He is teaching that a disciple must die to self, to your will, to your desires, and completely submit to the will of Christ. He is saying you must reckon yourself dead. You must reckon yourself dead. You remember when Christ carried his cross to the hill of Calvary, he has to walk through Jerusalem bearing this thing. That wasn't a new practice. That was what the Romans did to anyone who had been condemned to be crucified. They put the cross on them and made them walk through town carrying that cross. And everyone, when they saw that, they knew that is a dead man walking. He is walking to his death. So when Jesus says you must take up your cross, he is saying there is not just a denying of the cravings that you have, but there is a glad embrace of laying down your life for my sake. Here's how Paul said it in Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ. Man, and it is no longer I who live, but who? But Christ who lives in me. That's, that's, that's beginning to understand what it means to take up cross. Now I want you to notice, Jesus didn't phrase it as a cross that is laid upon you. Mm. He didn't phrase it as a cross that is laid upon you. He said, this is a cross you take up, which is uh, significant. There's the implication of glad submission to whatever the cost might be. It is to say, I have considered the cost and I will take up the cross. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. Now, if we're honest, we will confess to one another, this is a battle uh, for us. We love certain aspect, aspects of Jesus, certain blessings that come with belonging to Him, but we struggle with this call to come and die. We struggle with this. Why? Because there are still two natures at work in us, isn't there? It's that old self that loves self, but by God's grace is, is being defeated and put away. And there is that new self that by God's grace is growing in our love and knowledge of Christ. But when that old self looks at the opposition and the persecution and the suffering and the death that Jesus calls us to, that old self says, nope. I don't want anything to do with that. I do not want anything to do with that. 
But that new self, that part, of us, that, that part of us that is awakened to Christ when we come to Him and make Him the Lord of our life, that new creation that we have, it looks at the old self, it looks at old Matt, that old man, and it looks at him and says, you are no longer in charge. I am, I am ready to endure opposition and shame and suffering and death. And I will love Jesus more than I love the approval of man, more than I love the honor of man, more than I love comfort, more than I love my own life. Because there is more to gain in following Jesus, even with suffering, than there is in walking away from him. That's what it means to take up the cross, to see it, to count the cost, and to take it up anyway because Jesus is worth it. He said, you deny yourself, you take up the cross, and you follow me. We recognize again our position as followers of Jesus Christ. We, we come after. Jesus is in the lead. And the, the, the tense of these first two commands, this deny yourself and take up the cross, it, the tense of that is, what, is in what we call the aorist imperative. The aorist imperative, meaning there's some kind of decisive action that is involved. There is a decisive action. But the, this third one, this follow me, is in what's called the present imperative, meaning it's, it's, in, it's implying a continued action. Why does that matter? Because until we have taken the decisive action of denying ourselves and the decisive action of taking up the cross, we cannot continue in following Jesus. Believer, we have to understand there is no following apart from denying and taking up the cross. There is no following Christ. The last swings on the first two. And if you have settled into a rhythm of your life of believing you are following Christ without denying self or taking up the cross, you have missed it. You're Peter when Jesus said you've got your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God Discipleship is a lifelong journey that we will never master. We will do it to the day we die. A lifelong journey of glorifying Jesus through denying myself, and taking up the cross, and following him. Listen, to follow after Jesus means that it is Christ who sets the new priorities. It is Christ that determines what I value. It is Christ that establishes my identity. It is Christ that sets my vision for the world around me. It is Christ that directs my steps and holds my future. And to follow after Jesus is to acknowledge, yes, yes, I could take control of my own life. But in doing that, I would forfeit the highest blessing, the deepest satisfaction, and the grandest glory that is mine when I relinquish control of my life and follow him. Jesus came that we might have life. What did he say in John 10, 10? You remember that? He said, the thief comes to do what? Still kill, destroy. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to deceive. He wants to distract so that he can steal the glory of God, so that he can steal your deepest contentment. He wants to destroy your life. But what did Jesus say? I've come that you may have life. And what kind of life? Abundant life. 
abundant life. The path of abundant life is laid with stones of self-denial and of bearing the cross. That's what lays the stones to the path of abundant life. It's the cost of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to look at these last few verses, starting in verse 25. Jesus is going to teach us why we do this. Why deny? Why take up the cross? Why follow? Here's what he says. First thing I want you to, believe, I want you to see is this. Because life is found in him and in him alone. Look at verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When Jesus says uh, the word life, he uses that word uh, life there in verse 25. That is the Greek word suke. It means, it's where we get the English word psyche. It, it's this idea implying that part of us that makes us who we are, the individual, the breath and soul of a person, our identity. That's what he's saying. He's saying uh, for whoever would try to save his identity, his personality, his life will lose it. But whoever loses that identity for my sake will find it. That is huge. It is huge. Because what Jesus is saying is, if you want to know who you truly are, you cannot find that apart from me. You cannot find that suke, that psyche, that identity, that soul level understanding of who you are outside of laying your life down in a relationship with me and being my disciple. But if you do that, if you lay your life down, if you lay that down for my sake, you will find it. That is a glorious truth that ought to ignite a hallelujah in our souls. He's saying, life is found in me. And you don't have to keep trying to labor to build a life you can't hold on to anyway. Life is found in him. Here's the second thing. Why, why we do this. Why do we deny? Why do we take up the cross? Why do we follow? And it's this. Because the kingdom of God is worth it. Because the kingdom of God is worth it. Verse 26. <clears throat> Excuse me. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. Jesus is trying to shift their expectations. He is saying the kingdom of God is worth it. He wants to shatter our expectations as well. Why? So that he can give us new ones. So that he can give us new expectations, new lives that are fixed on the kingdom. And he reminds us that we really only have two choices. We can either hold on to this life and ultimately lose it. Or we can lay our lives down for his sake and find it. And in the end, the value of a life found in Jesus, even one filled with denying self and bearing cross, is infinitely more valuable than any life this world has to offer. 
And here's what we know. Jesus said it. He is coming again. Amen? Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus is coming again? Let me ask you this. Do you long for that day or do you fear it? I want, to know, I want you to know in, in honesty, I have spent years of my life fearing that day rather than longing for it. But I long for that day now. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we wait like a bride waits for the groom. We wait for your glorious appearing. Come, Lord. We just sang about it. Lord, haste the day when my faith, <laughs> this thing that I have believed in, this life laid down, this not, when my faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. And I hear that trump that resounds and the Lord descends. Lord, haste that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 4, this is the last thing I want you to see. Paul, he's, he's writing to the church, and he's, he's affirming, he's acknowledging, yes, there is going to be suffering that as disciples of Christ, we will be afflicted, we will be perplexed, we will be uh, persecuted, we will be struck down for the sake of the gospel. He says we will carry in our bodies the death of Jesus. We will be given over to death for Jesus' sake. That's what it means to be a disciple. He doesn't shy away from it. He acknowledges it. But he says in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, listen to what he says. But we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. Why? Because it's being laid down every day for the, for the glory of God and, and, and for His kingdom. It's wasting away. But though that's happening, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And believer, if you need to, you wake up every day and you preach verse 17 and 18 to yourself. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What is he saying? He is saying the worst that this world can do to you is light and is momentary in comparison to the weight of glory that it is preparing for you in the kingdom of God. The kingdom is worth it. That's what he's saying. In every affliction you bear, every persecution you endure, every time you're left out, knocked out, put down, and put aside for the sake of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, Paul says that moment is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory that does not compare. So we do not lose heart. We do not grow weary in doing good. We keep our minds fixed on the things of God. Because the kingdom of God is worth it. It's worth it. So how do we respond? What do we do? I believe there are some of, I believe there are some of you here this morning that your confession would be, I know a lot about Jesus, but I've never really met him. I've never really met him. I have never truly laid my life down and, and surrendered my life to him and allowed him to be the Lord of my life and, and allowed him to come in and be the conductor, be the one in charge. I've never really laid my life down and received that free gift of salvation, but I'm tired and I want to do it. I believe God wants to do that in somebody's heart today. 
And if that's you in just a moment, we're going to be standing right here. You come take us by the hand and we'll help you do that. I believe there are some of you who would say, I am a believer, but the truth is I've tried to do this in a way where I don't have to deny myself, where there's no real cost involved to following after Christ. And I need to come and I need to lay down. I need to come and deny myself. I need to take up the cross of following Jesus. Count the cost and still take the cross and I need to begin to follow after Him. That may mean you just come down and repent. You may just come down and get on your knees and pray. It may be you turn around right where you are while the band sings and you just kneel at your seat and you pray and you ask for God to forgive you. I just want you to know whatever it is that you need to do, we're going to be here at the front and I want you to respond in obedience to what God has spoken to your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And... Uh, Father, your word is strong, and uh, it calls us to deeper and better things. And you have done that in my heart today. You have done that in my heart this week. God, I am praying you will do it in this room right now, that you would move, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that those who are lost would, would, would draw near and find their way to the saving name of Jesus. And God, those who are just not walking in obedience who have not laid down their life, who are not denying self, God, that they would come and, and, and lay that down and find a life in you that is more abundant and free than they've ever known. Would you come and move among us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's worship. Let's respond. I hope that you have enjoyed this message. If you have any questions about anything that you have heard today or would like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, feel free to call our church offices at 903-759-5552 or send us an email at info at nbbctx.org. As for staying up to date with what's going on at New Beginnings, follow us on our social media accounts. Have a great rest of your day.